it's so good to see you this morning, City Light Church. Uh, my name is Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles up. We're going to be in Ephesians 4, as John just eloquently read, and we're going to pick it up in verse 17. Uh, we're going we're to couch right in that place uh, for the entire morning, uh, but, I, but I think uh, I want to kind of give you my title first so that you understand where we're headed. Uh, my, the title of my sermon is Identity Crisis. And I think this is a fitting topic for every single generation. I don't think there's one generation that's set apart, that's figured out their identity thing. I think every generation struggles with identity. Every generation struggles to find their unique identity or define who they really are. And the church is no different. Uh, we want to know who we're not. and We want to know who we are and what that should look like, how that should play out in our life. And, and the issue for the church is that as we run toward trying to figure out who we are, um, we live in an environment that's not the same as what we think, right? We, we don't live in a utopian environment where everybody believes the same, thinks the same about all the issues. Um, and so we live in a place that is actually contrary to God in the way he would purpose for us in our life and what he would call us to. And the world is the majority, right? Like the, the majority of the world is outside of uh, what God would call us to. And so unfortunately, if we were to do an honest look at our life and our heart, um, we, we're, we're far more, um, far more led or, or even mentored by the world around us than we'd like to admit, right? Based on what we see on TV and, and, and what we listen to in our ears and who the heroes are in our life, who we admire, uh, we as the church are being discipled and mentored by the world around us. And the result of this, uh, quite frankly, is that the church doesn't look a whole lot different than the world. I mean, we have public figures with sexual scandals. Well, guess what? We have pastors with the same thing. We have disenfranchisement of women and uh, people of color. Well, guess what? In the church, not a whole lot of difference. Can, can, I mean, if you look at the church, what, what is the difference? Like, Can you see a difference between the church and the world around it? Jesus Christ came and died. He lived the perfect life. He, he died for the sins, for our sins on our behalf, and, and then he rose from the grave. And yet, 2,000 years later, his church still doesn't look a whole lot different than the world. Who are we? What sets us apart? Should, shouldn't our identity as, as new creations in Christ radically change who we are and our activity? If, if this is who we are, shouldn't we be different? And similarly, with the Ephesian church, uh, as we're going to look at, they, they had an identity crisis too. And, and that, that's what Paul's going to address as we walk through the text. And so to get to know who we are, we first need to know who we're not. And so let's look at, pick it up in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So, so to know who we really are, we must first know our old identity, who we are, aren't anymore, right? Who we aren't anymore. And so Paul starts out saying, hey, don't walk as the Gentiles do. And if you've been with us for some time now walking through the book of Ephesians, you know that Paul's done great, gone through great lengths and great work to say, hey, I want to I create unity among all different kinds of people, including the Gentiles. You see, historically, Jews uh, were the God's chosen people set apart, his protected love people. And then Gentiles were basically everybody else. And so if, he, if, if in this place he's like, don't be like the Gentiles, it kind of it gets a little confusing there. And so what he's not saying, he's not talking about the ethnic, cultural Gentiles. He's, saying, he's not saying don't be the, the ethnic or cultural group that you are. What he's saying is 
don't be like the rest of the world. Don't be the world around the church, the Greco-Roman society that they were in is what he's referring to. He's saying to them, you, you must no longer walk as the world around you walks. Those who don't believe in Jesus, don't do what they do. Don't think the way they think. Paul's saying, don't, don't be who you used to be in, now. You, you're not a part of the world anymore. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. But, but catch this. This is not behavior modification. This is a heart change that he's referring to. A lasting change only comes from changing the way we think. And what we believe about who we are actually determines how we behave. You see, the battleground doesn't take place out there, but it actually takes place in our mind. Paul's describing how we once thought and how that manifests itself in our life. And here's how he describes it. At the end of verse 17, he says, in the futility of their minds. See, their, their thinking is futile, meaning it, it's empty. My, my, one of my favorite books in the Bible was Ecclesiastes. is written by Solomon, and the way he uses that same word is he says, vanity of vanity, saying that any idea, anything that is done outside of God isn't worthy of pursuing because it won't satisfy. Our, our, our work won't satisfy. Our, our pleasure won't. Our relationships won't. And, and don't get me wrong. So these Gentile people, the, 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 the Greco-Roman society, they were intellectuals. They thought, they, they gave great resources and time and energy toward thinking, but only thinking about things that are not God. You see, they, they, this, this whole mindset of this pursuit of the creation instead of the creator ends up empty and futile. Let me give you an example of how this works. So in our culture today, the way the thought process is, is I am the captain of my destiny. I am my own God, right? That, that's the way we naturally think. It, it, it's up, and, and so here's, here's what the pressure that, that puts on us. It's up to me to give meaning to my own life. It's up to me to define my own purpose. It's up to me to make myself valuable. It's up to me to meet my own needs. It's up to me to give myself pleasure. And all of that ends up in this endless, weighty, disappointing result. It's a disappointing pursuit. This is, this is the world we live in. We, we, we're constantly told, do what makes you happy. Revolve your life around yourself. And yet no one seems to have enough money or enough time or enough vacation in fact all of us seem very unsatisfied yet we still are told continually do what makes you happy and focus on yourself and the more and more we pursue that the less and less we're satisfied do you see the futility of that how how fading it is to tell god hey i'm going to take your spot and i'm going to rule my own life there's no substitute than, than the loving, passionate, pleasurable, enduring pursuit of a relationship with Jesus Christ so that we can have intimate, good life, life in him. No other substitute will ever satisfy. No other way of thinking will bring about who we truly are. Most of us are tempted to live life as, in, in a form of functional atheism. Let me explain what I mean by that. It, it, we might proclaim with our lips that Jesus is king and Lord of our life, but our actions, our weekends, our time, our bank accounts are as though God doesn't exist. Our, our focus, our desires, and, and how we think about life and its pursuits aren't any different from the way the world would do it. It's, it's absent of God, and it's futile. Verse 18 and 19 says that, that the world and the way they function are darkened in their understanding. They have a hardened heart. It's, it's callous because they're alienated from God. Catch this. 
This is why being angry about the world for the way it thinks or does thing is pointless. Hear me. It is pointless to wonder why the world does things contrary to God. Think, think about it this way. If, if, if you don't love God, why would you do things that honor God? Doesn't make any sense, right? Like, you, you can't expect people who don't know Jesus to operate as if they do know Jesus. Our expectation of the world ought to be that they would walk in darkness because they have not learned or comprehended the Lord Jesus Christ and his beauty and his majesty. They have not bowed their knee to Jesus in submission. Therefore, they will not and should not be expected to do so. Paul describes this thinking and then says, he's describing the world's thinking. And then he says in verse 20, but this is not how you, this is not the way you learn Christ. If you if you heard and responded in faith to the fact that Jesus, the reality that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on your behalf for your sin and then rose from the grave. You're no longer the person that puts yourself first in your thinking. That's your old self. That's who you once were. Like we heard in Ephesians 2, 1, right? It says you were dead in your trespassing. Key word being you were. That's past tense. That means it's gone. It's done away with. You're no longer dead. You're alive. You no longer have to think that way any longer. Beth Moore has a beautiful illustration about how we function in this. What she says is that we, we spiritually function as though we have this corpse on our back that we carry around with us. And then she even goes further to illustrate the fact that, like, man, what if we did spiritually, what, what if we did physically what we do spiritually? What if we carried around this dead body on our backs, because that's basically what we're doing, and we're walking around, and it's smelling bad, and, and, and it's affecting everything else we do? There are many times that we're tempted to go back to that old life and carry that carcass around, you know, when we get into comfortable spaces, start hanging out with old friends. Things get difficult, we get angry, or if money gets tight, all of a sudden that carcass comes back up, right? And then we want to cover it up. I don't know how you do that. How do you cover up a dead body? You can't. It starts to smell, it starts to decay, and, and it starts to affect everything that it's around. And so for me, that actually is most likely to happen at home. I, I know that... Um, what happens is I'm also, all of a sudden the spiritual force during my job hours, and then I go home, and all of a sudden grace doesn't abound anymore with my kids, right? Or, or, or that like, I'm going to slack off a little bit on my duties as, as being a husband and a father because, well, grace is going to abound from them. They're going to still love me. They're not going to reject me. You see, we all do this in one environment or another or situation, and the other people who love us, they suffer. We're carrying around some dead body that's decaying and, and really starting to smell. And, and the people who love us, they're watching us. They're watching us, agonizing over, why would you continue to carry around that dead body when it should be buried and done away with? We must be people that stop carrying around the dead person that was crucified with Christ and start living as new living men and women who have been raised with Christ. We used to have these futile thoughts and had darkened understanding of God and a callous toward our sin, but that's not who we are anymore. In Christ, we have been given a new identity in a new, as a new creation, and that's who we truly are. That's what we live out of. That's how we think. Look with me at verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, 
and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So the observation of who we really are, our new identity is who we truly are, right? That's the observation, verse 22. So, so, so here's how this doesn't work. So I don't know if you've ever seen it. There's this Bob Newhart counseling session. Um, all the older people are laughing. But if you're younger, Google it, find it on YouTube, and look it up after we're done, okay? But anyway, Bob Newhart, he, he's doing this counseling session. It's hilarious. He's sitting down, and, and I wish a lot, some of the counseling sessions would go this way, but they don't. Anyway, so he sits down with this woman. She comes in, and she's, like, explaining, like, her heart, like, telling him, man, here's where I'm at. I struggle with great anxiety over the fact that I think I'm going to be buried alive at some point. Like, she's just burying her soul. Like, I want to be set free. And, and Bob just sits there, and he... He looks at her intently and with love and care and says, well, my counseling sessions usually last about five minutes. Uh, I charge a dollar a minute. I only take cash, five dollars. Um, and, uh, and he's like, I got two words for you. So she's like ready to go. She's like, man, this is going to, I'm going to get freed real soon. Five minutes, that ain't bad. So she gets her pencil and paper out and he's like, it's two words. And so he, he gets down with her, looks at her and says, stop it. Just stop it. And like, it, it's crazy. Like, like, basically what he's telling her is like, you know how do you fix your problems? Just stop doing what you're doing. Stop thinking the way you're thinking. And she's like blown away by it. And he's like, I don't understand why it was a confusion. Just stop doing those things. And, but while that is humorous and, and, and funny, it's not that helpful, right? Like, like a side note of this, like, isn't it beautiful that Jesus doesn't look at us in our sin and our issues and say, just stop it, Right? Instead, he, he comes in empathy and in grace, and, 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 he, and he, he empathizes with us. He listens to us, and the gospel is not an invitation to just stop doing or thinking about those things, but an invitation to trust in Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? It's not just to stop it. Uh, and we didn't need to stop our behavior. That wasn't our issue, was to stop our bad behavior. We needed to be made new as a new person. We needed a new identity altogether. We can't stop, simply stop being who we were until we start realizing who we really are. So Paul says in verse 24, to, to put on our new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Far too often what we do as Christians, uh, sorry, far too often we do what Christians do because that's what Christians do. You know, like rather than living out of the identity and who we are, we do what Christians do because that's what Christians do. This is like the middle schooler who's just gone through an entire weekend of camp without showering, goes, puts on new, new, clean clothes on, and then decides to, like, axe bomb it real quick to think that that's going to solve the problem, right? Like, that's not going to fix the issue. You're still going to be pretty funky, dude. Like, that's not going to work for you. Stop it. Uh, anyway, um, but that's, that's essentially what it's like, right? Like, you can't cover it up. You must take off the old self and then put on the new self that is only found in the gospel. So don't do what Christians do, respond to what Christ Jesus has done. Don't do what Christians do, respond to what Jesus has done. Preach the gospel to yourself because that's who you are. You see, we have to change the way we think and start thinking about the gospel. Verse 23 assumes that God has already given us the tools and what we need in order for our minds and our hearts to change, right? Like it says, he, he said, renewed by the spirit of your minds. And so, so how do we get the mind of God? How do we get the mind of Christ, the gospel, implanted in our minds and our hearts? Well, Romans 12, 2 says this. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So there's a continuum of that. 
By the testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, we're not to think about the world, sorry, we're not to think like the world, but renew our minds to see what God's will is, the way God sees the world, the way God desires and feels. And we're to do that not just at one moment, but every single day. This isn't a call to simply stop thinking one way and then think another way. This is a call to deep, intimate relationship with God. The closer you get to him, the more intimate you get with him, the the more you start to take in his word, the more you will become like him, the more you will think like him, the more you will love him. We can begin to think in a new and right way the more we meditate on God's word and his truths and then position our heart in prayer to start to function in that, to receive that. Verse 24 in our text is the hinge point of this section. It says, created in the likeness of God. You see, Genesis 1 starts out saying that all of humanity, every single person, is created in the image of God, in the likeness of God, which gives every single human being an innate value by God. They're valuable. But Paul doesn't stop there in this place, though. He doesn't stop with we're made in the likeness of God. No, he says, he says likeness of God in righteousness and holiness. So this is different, right? This isn't every other person in the world. These are the people who have placed their faith in Jesus, have been counted as righteous because of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, and are continually being made holy by God. That's what he's talking about here. 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, Just as we have been born the image of a man of dust, that's Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You see, we've been born of the man of heaven, Jesus, who is our righteousness, and we're being made holy more like him continually. Not perfectly. Romans 7 articulates that really well, that we struggle with sin still, but a progression of seeing ourselves becoming more and more like Christ, more and more holy. We have a new status in Christ, therefore we are called into a changing and a becoming in practice what we already are in status. Who we are in Christ should result in new and different ways of living and thinking because that's who we actually are. That's what it's driven by. Our thinking, our identity dictates those things. Look with me at the remaining verses, picking up at 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, third, last observation, third observation. Our new life is who we're like. Jesus, the holy and righteous one. It's who we're like. So, so Paul in this section actually gets incredibly practical for us, right? He, he talks about, man, don't think this way, but think this way. And then he goes into practically, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to not think or do things like the world, but out of your new identity. And he covers six areas specifically in this section. He carries one, truth, two, anger, third, generosity, fourth, speech, sixth, our relationship to God, and finally, oh, so that was, that was five, six, forgiveness. So we'll start with truth. Verse 25, it puts it this way. It says, put away all falsehood and speak truth. 
Now, when you look at that word falsehood, what that word falsehood is, is it, it's like a word that's an umbrella term. It means all full out lies and half lies and the absence of truth in a, in a conversation. So like any excuse that you might make to be deceitful, it's, it's including that. Don't be that way. As followers of Jesus, we're called to be truth tellers, right? We're called to, to tell the truth in love. And so we're constantly working for this family here to be as transparent as we possibly can as the family of God, right? To be open. A, a girl came to me last week and said, man, you know what I love about our church? So, you know what I love about this family? That I don't feel the pressure that when I walk into a room that I have to put a mask on. Isn't that beautiful? That's a wonderful thing that, that we as the family of God will meet people where they are but we also won't let them stay there. You see, speaking truth also means that we're going to tell each other when we see sin in each other's life. We can't sit on our hands while a brother or sister walks in something that might be destructive in their life. That's not loving. We must be honest with our brothers and sisters and tell them the truth out of love. Second one is anger. In verse 26, it says, be angry and do not sin. So this is kind of a shocker for me. I was like, I can be angry? Cool. Um, but Because the implication there is that there's a, a, a righteous kind of anger. Uh, the Bible would describe that as a righteous indignation. Uh, one of my favorite verse, or ch- uh, sections of scripture is John 2. Uh, Jesus gets really angry. He, he goes into the temple. He notices that his people are not allowing others to worship God. And so what he does in anger is he sits there and braids a whip. That's angry, right? Like, that's, that's some anger. He's braiding a whip, and, and, and then he starts whipping everything, and maybe people. It doesn't say he didn't whip people, but he was whipping things all, all over the place, pushing people out because he was indignant. He was angry about the effect of these people's greed and sin from, for preventing other people from worshiping God. You see, there's a, there's a righteous anger. There's a healthy anger at sin. Not that we can go and whip folks, just to clarify. Um, but we ought to hate sin, though. We ought to grieve over the damage that sin creates in our world and, and around us. We, we, but the, but the, the catch to that is we can't nurture it and let it fester because it becomes very highly personal then. And then our hatred for the sin and its effects actually turns to the person. In, in Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus is super clear. He says, if your anger turns to malice for your brother or sister, you've murdered them in your heart already. So he's very serious about our anger, and it's, and it's the point or focus of that anger. See, Jesus came and died for our sins. It actually doesn't lower the expectation of holiness. In fact, it raises the bar. Jesus, by his grace, sanctifies us, changes our heart to a higher level of purity. So rather than being angry like the world, being over something that we think that we're entitled to or coming up with a a malice toward people who bear the image of God, we get angry about injustice. We get angry about sin's destruction and sin's offense toward those who we love. We don't let it grow outside of the boundaries of that and start to perform uh, violence on someone else or the, the, the vocal violence that we might perform on someone or fits of anger because we know that God's anger was upon us at one point and yet his grace abound. Generosity. Verse 26 says, let no one, let us no longer steal but work honestly. Now a lot of us in the room are thinking, I ain't never robbed nobody. 
right? Like, you, you might be thinking that. Some of y'all might not. Sketchy folks. But anyway, no, just kidding. Uh, a lot of us might be saying that, but what about kind of those subtle thefts that we have? What about, like, when you file your taxes? Uh-oh. What about how you report things through going through customs? Or, or, or maybe, maybe what about that person who, like, man, you, somebody let him borrow his tools, and then he didn't take them back and just kind of forgot? I know I'm guilty of that one. Maybe not, some of you are not. Let's get the college students then. What about the time that you went into Chipotle and said, oh, I, I forgot my wallet and didn't pay due back for the burrito? Hashtag college life. Anyway, uh, it's crazy, but, but here's, here's what Paul's not simply saying. Paul doesn't say stop, stop stealing things, right? He doesn't stop there. He doesn't say stop stealing. He, he's saying, man, God wants to shape and mold our heart. He doesn't stop with work honest and work hard either. He says the reason for all of that, to stop stealing, work hard and honest, is generosity, to give. So as people of the Midwest, we might not struggle with the hard work and the honest but what about it when it comes to generosity? If there's someone in your city group who's in need, is your knee-jerk reaction to their need to say, let me push all my chips into that to help them out, or is it let me keep some of that for myself? When there's an opportunity to give above and beyond your, your normal sacrificial, sacrificial giving here, is your knee-jerk reaction like, yeah, may grace abound, or is it just to put it back in your pocket? Right? Or... or if you're a part of the City Light family, are you sacrificially and faithfully giving to God in worship? Notice all of these imperatives, these commands, not only involve a change of thinking, but an action towards some people, right? So it's an interaction of, from the gospel perspective around people. And so the, the world thinks very differently than us. So think about this. I've been told this, actually. The world believes that if you were to give 10% or more of your finances to a local body of Christ— for the worship of God and for the service of the mission, they would say that's dumb, right? They say if you're not first counting yourself more benefit, the beneficiary of it, saying, hey, let's put away as much as we can for retirement, and let's put away as much as we can for that rainy day that may not ever happen, it's dumb to not give to yourself first. That's the way the world would think about that. But here's the truth. What we have and what we've earned isn't ours to begin with. It's God's, and his call is for us to worship him with everything we have, and that includes what's in your wallet. You may not be robbing people, but you might be robbing God of worship with your finances, and you might be robbing him of the opportunity to bless you and show you how deeply you can depend on him and how much he can bless you and provide for you. Our new identity takes us from take all you can, get all you can, to give it away, because we won't be able to take it with us anyway. Then he goes to speech. The next one is this idea of what comes out of our mouth. If we truly understand and believe that the gospel itself, like if we understand our significance in Christ, that we're signed and sealed with the acceptance and rooted in Christ, then what comes out of our mouth should be out of the outflow of that reality of what we believe. In order to, to have speech that matches that, we have to be thinking the gospel, taking the gospel in, believing the gospel more and more and more, being closer to God, then what that will produce is things that are of God, right? The Spirit of God dwells in us. That should be what comes out of our mouth. I think it's really helpful for us to understand that Jesus is very clear in Luke 6.45. He says that what comes in the man's heart is what comes out of his mouth. You see, what, what comes out of our mouth is not just a slip 
It's actually what's contained in here. In Christ, we go from speaking death to speaking life into people. And you see, this would be a good time for me to remind you, so let me pause for a second. The solution to this is not to try harder or simply stop doing stuff altogether. That's not the solution. That, that's never been the solution, and that, won't, that will continue to not be the solution. The solution is to know who we truly are in Christ and live in response to what Christ has done on our behalf. It's not just a stop or a change of behavior. It's to believe what is already true about you. Our relationship with God is the other one that he points out. He says our sin doesn't only affect our relationship with the people around us, but it also affects God. Did you know that your sin affects God? Verse 30 says that our sin grieves God the Holy Spirit. And our sin usually, I mean, so typically with our sin, the people that grieve the most over that is the people that are closest to us, right? So the people that are in proximity. Now think about this. The Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. He's as close as you can get. And he grieves over our sin. And, and I know that the check is like, well, doesn't he already know that we're going to sin? Like, isn't that what Jesus died for? Yeah, I agree. He, he, he does know that. But here's the thing. Here's what I think the Spirit grieves over more. I think he grieves over how your sin affects your brothers and sisters in Christ around you. And also how it damages you. As a parent, one of the sins of my children that grieve me the most is how they treat one another, right? So just the other day, Uriah, my little uh, four-year-old boy, hit one of his sisters. Not sure one because he, he does it often, uh, <laughs> semi-often. Anyway, so, so he hits one of them, and, and, and what happens is I'm, he can see visibly my anger but also my grief and hurt because it broke my heart. It broke my heart that he would treat his sister in that way, and here's why, though. Here's why. Because... The way he, as a boy, treats my daughters as women will show them what the expectation is of how they should be treated when they are grown women and how men ought to treat them. You see, I think that that's what grieves the Holy Spirit because I think likewise, how we treat our brothers and sisters is a reflection of Christ. And when we sin against them, we taint that view. Just like Uriah taints that view. We're to live the gospel, not simply to the world, but also to one another. Now, the last one that Paul covers is forgiveness. The final one in our text, it, what, it resemble, what it resembles is Jesus in radical forgiveness, right? So to put away how the world responds to people who offended us, that's what he's talking about in verse 31, is that that's how the world responds to it. But then verse 32 calls us to a higher forgiveness, this, this is going to be one of the hardest things for our minds to wrap around, right? Like our minds can't just supernaturally forget about what someone's done to us. If someone has hurt us, man, if someone's hurt you, I want to first say I'm sorry, okay? That, that, that grieves me. That grieves God the Father as well. But when we experience that pain, when our Heavenly Father agrees with us, no that he also grieved in the same way when our sin put his son on the cross. You see, listen, your sin and my sin are why Jesus died. This is the first place that we go when someone offends us. This is before they've, sin before they've asked for forgiveness, before they may have repented. We go right here before they've ever apologized. You must understand that the lie that you tell, the malicious anger that you've had toward a brother or sister, your greed, your covetedness, your crude words, your self-glorification, your secret sin, your pride, your lust, and your ignoring the, God, the power of God all put Christ on the cross. Every single sin 
is what put Jesus on the cross to take our punishment that we deserve. So we're no better than the offender. Our sin, like theirs, nailed Jesus to the cross. And so in order to forgive someone, we have to first change our thinking from, I would never do that to someone like someone, to, I've committed sin, I'm still committing sin, and I'm capable of some of the most heinous sin apart from God's grace. That's the first step. Knowing how sinful you, you've been and what you're capable of apart from Christ. That's the first one. The second step is to see the person as Christ sees you. You know, when, when Christ died, he didn't expect for you to all of a sudden be someone different. He didn't expect for you to come and clean yourself up first. No, it, what he did, he loved you and loved you for who you are in that moment. He met you where you are. He didn't expect you to be somebody different. Romans 5, 8 says it, that, that while we were still in our sin, while we were rebelling, while we were God the Father's enemy, Jesus died for us. And in the same way, because we have been freely forgiven from our identity in Christ, we can freely forgive. So our plea as followers of Jesus isn't, please forgive me for being human. No, our, our plea is, Jesus, forgive me for not acting like, thinking like who I really am. We're changed not to modify our behavior, but to be more like Jesus and how he would form and shape us. Ephesians 4 just is a reminder for us that Jesus already did the heavy lifting on our behalf, right? He's already done all the heavy lifting. He died so that that old person can die, and he rose from the grave so the new one can live. He gave his spirit in the Bible so that we can continue to renew our minds so that we can be more like Christ. We are to respond to what Christ has done. Respond to what he's made us. Christianity isn't a group of good people who become better or a group of bad people who become good. No, it's a group of dead people who have been made alive. Amen? And, and, and as we've been made alive, we've been made into a new family. And, and as a new family, we, we share a meal together in remembrance of why that was made possible. We, 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 we God sent his son and defeated Satan's sin and death, and he was victorious in it, right? He was victorious to defeat Satan, sin, and death. And so in remembrance of that victory, we take communion. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus in this moment or 40 years ago, the invitation is clear. Come and join us in this meal. Participate in communion. We will take the bread, which is Jesus' body broken for us, dip it in the juice, which is his blood shed for us. This is a family meal. And because of that, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, we'd ask that you don't participate. Now, hear me graciously say this. It's not because we want to exclude you, my friends, but because I would hate for you to proclaim physically what hasn't taken place in your heart. But I would like to invite you to something, though. Man, at the end of the gathering, one of the pastors, myself, Ricky, Austin, or anybody else in the room, come talk to us. Ask us questions. If you'd like to receive Christ, man, I, I can help you with that. that that's a, a thing that we can do. But just come talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. Amen? Let's pray.